0: You, man. Excellent. Now, who on earth is this man? John is going to tell us. It's sort of a, this is the third time I've, uh, I've introduced um, Brad this weekend, and, um, and I'm enjoying every time because I'm just sort of like feeding in another little thing that I just want to speak um, out. And so um, I want to introduce uh, Brad to you this morning is a very good friend of mine um, and someone that Louise and I have had the privilege to know for around 15 years. He and his wife Robin lead a, a ministry which, which Brad will, uh, will, will tell you about called Pure for God. Um, and um, they come from the States. And um, when I have uh, introduced Brad, and it's just lovely when you get to introduce a really good friend to other good friends, so, uh, so w- we're really pleased that he's here today, but when I introduced him to uh, my team of youth workers on Friday night, I introduced him as an old Jedi master. Um, <laughs> last night, um, to the uh, sort of leaders in the town, I introduced him as someone who is present, and um, if you are worried when I say, here is my friend Brad from the States. Don't worry, this isn't like Pastor Bob Ministries. Um, he, he hasn't got a tour bus. Brad is, um, is someone of a, of a genuine, uh, wonderful heart who is present. This morning, let me just uh, um, tell you a very quick story of the first time we met Brad. My wife and I were um, just um, beginning to date. And um, our, another mentor of mine, a really good friend called Colin, he had told us that Brad and Robin were coming and that all of the young couples who in this ministry had started to kind of go out were going to meet with them. And as I remember it, we all sat in a queue outside a little room in a primary school. So it was like going into a head teacher's office. <laughs> and Louise and I were about third or fourth in line. And the, the couple that came out From speaking to them before Louise and I came in, said this, they know everything. (laughs) And that's very true. And that's the way I'd like to introduce Brad to you today. (laughs) Wow, stay and pray with him. Okay, Okay, we're looking to know everything. (laughs) Thank you. No pressure pressure at all, man. Let's let's pray for Brad, John, stay and pray. (laughs) Lord Jesus, we just thank you for Brad. We thank you that you've imbued him with the knowledge of everything, and, uh, and you have because you know everything, and your spirit lives in him as it does in us. Lord, empower him now to boldly and without impediment speak out the word from you that he's been given. Lord, uh, soften our hearts, unblock our ears, open our minds. Lord, and refresh our spirits that we might not just hear, we might receive, and we might act on what we hear from God today through Brad. Give him a blessing, we pray, uh, and let us hear from you through him. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Amen. How do you say anything after… Talk to my wife and children if you think that I know everything. <laughs> wow. Thank you, John. I, I didn't even remember that. That's amazing. I also remember that I got very sick at that conference, and I had to go back to your apartment and sleep, too. And I appreciate them because they were very kind and understanding of this man who knew everything but still had time to get sick. And, um, but I want to thank you for this opportunity, Pastor, for inviting me to come and opening up your pulpit. Uh, I know you don't know me personally, you kind of know me through John. It's always a risk when you invite someone to come and speak in your pulpit. It's also a greater risk when you invite an American to come and speak in your (laughs) pulpit. But uh, I want you to know that I love England. Um, When I was a young man, God called me to come to England. I didn't know what for. He just said, go to England. So I got on a plane and flew to England and just started meeting people and uh, have met Friends, my dearest friends actually are in England for 25 years. We've been bringing missions teams and coming over and teaching in schools to train youth pastors with the message of encouraging people to live pure for God. And that's the name of our organization. And you know, when you say pure for God, people sometimes get the wrong idea. Um, we're not a ministry that's talking about some 10 steps to living a pure life or being a perfect person or anything. It's just simply about accepting Christ as your personal savior, but remembering at the same time that the Holy Spirit is supposed to come and indwell your life, that you can live a life that would honor Christ. That's what we mean by purity. It's just the Holy Spirit working in our lives, producing purity. It is not some time of gritting your teeth and working really hard at being a perfect person, because would you all agree that doesn't work? But when we just free ourselves to allow the Holy Spirit to work in us, God can begin to produce pure attitudes and pure actions and pure words in our lives. So in Pure for God, we primarily work with youth pastors and people in training for ministry And we have three areas of um, um, emphasis. Number one is to make sure they understand the gospel. And the gospel is more than just Jesus dying on a cross and forgiving our sins, but there's so many components that when you fully understand all of what the gospel is, it makes the act of Christ come alive. And it produces in you spiritual health. The second thing that we talk about is uh, proper and healthy theology. You know, when you get basic theology right, God can really work in your life. And then the third area is emotional health. We see so many people being called into ministry today, and especially youth ministry, that have scars in their life and hurt and lack emotional health. And if that's not dealt with, dealt with at a young age, they go into ministry, and that emotional ill health is passed down to their young people. And I think that's part of the problem that we see in the United States and probably here in England that we need to work and make sure people know the gospel are theologically healthy but also are healthy in their mind and in their spirit and their attitudes regarding things that may have happened to them in their past in the church or through family situations so that's a little bit of a, what pure for god does and uh... If any of you are interested in youth ministry, I'd love to sit down and have a conversation with you. If any of you are struggling with something in your own personal life about uh, having emotional health, you'd like to talk about that, that would be great as well. But I'm here this morning to encourage you to seek after God with all of your heart. I was listening to a sermon one time and the speaker got up and said something that basically stopped me where I didn't even listen to the rest of his sermon. He said, there are three types of people that come to church. Three types of people that make up the church. And everybody here is one of these three. So I'm going to give you these three, and I want you to choose which one describes you. And you can't be half one and half another. You're either one, two, or three. You make the choice. So I'm going to give you that opportunity right now. Here are the three choices of the people that make up the congregation that meets here this this morning. Number one you are a whole-hearted devotee of Jesus Christ. That's number one. Does that describe you? Number two, you are a half-hearted participant. Does that describe you? Or number three, you are a stagnant spectator. He says you can only choose one of those three. Are you a whole-hearted devotee, a half-hearted participant, or a stagnant spectator? He says, you can only choose one of the three. So I encourage you now in your spirit to say, which one of those resonates with you that describes you the best? Then he said, and God is only pleased with one of the three. Wow. We could just sit here and meditate on that for a half hour and get a lot out of that. And I remember as I sat there and I listened to it, can you understand as I was meditating on that and he went on with the rest of his message, I had to sort that out. I had to say, the only one that pleases God is who? The wholehearted devotee. But I know the pressures. I know the things in my life that are not pleasing to God. I know the struggles that I was going through. And so as he said that, it reminded me of how God wants us to be wholehearted, devotedly to him. And if we're less than that, then we need to seek and pursue after him. The worst of those three, however, is being a spectator, and that's what I want to talk about this morning. In the States, especially, churches have become spectators of worship, spectators of prayer, spectators of evangelism, spectators of, of study, spectators of just about every element of, of the Christian faith without being able to be fully devoted to those very same things. And I'm sure in England you see that same trend developing. In Jeremiah 29, verse 13, there's a really great verse that says this You will seek me and you will find me. Does anybody know what the rest of it says? When you seek me with all of your heart. Wow. All of your heart. That's the hard word, isn't it? All. We seek God, but do we seek Him with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our spirit? You know, Americans are fat. Did you know that? Did you know this is absolutely true that when planes come from overseas and they fly into the United States and pick up passengers and return, they have to readjust their land off and take off procedures because of the added weight of the people on board. Not their luggage, but it's literally thousands of pounds more because of the weight of Americans on the planes returning to your country. Isn't that exciting? <laughs> I come from a fat country. But let me ask you this, then why do one-third of children in America go to bed hungry? That's a spectator, isn't it? That we feed ourselves and we don't see what's going on around us. And the same thing can happen spiritually. We can feed ourselves and grow large and fat as, as, as Christians, but yet fail to realize all of the people around us that are starving. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 2. It's a story of a man named Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. We're not going to take time to recount the whole story today, but are you familiar with it? Eli was a priest, and he wasn't a very good priest. He was growing older, and he was losing interest in spiritual things, and and his life was not passionate about God anymore. And his lack of passion was passed on to the next generation of his sons. So look at it. It's 1 Samuel 2, verse 12. It says, Eli's sons were wicked men, and they had no regard for the Lord. Wow. Can you think of a more staggering summary of your life when you got the end of your life than that it says that Eli's sons were wicked men, and they had no regard for the God of their father? Again, I work with youth pastors and young people, and I see young people leaving the faith in droves. And I can't put the blame on them. I have to look back at our generation and say, is it because of our passiveness and our spectatorism that they have been passed on a legacy of uninvolvement and not caring? Talk talked to the youth leaders about this last night and the leaders of the church. And it says, if you read this passage, that Eli was physically a heavy man. In fact, he died when he fell off a chair because he was so heavy he couldn't get his balance. But he was indifferent to the things that were going in around him because he had two sons that were doing all the work and he basically could take all the benefits and sit at home and feed himself. He was uninvolved in their lives. He was uninvolved in the daily workings of the temple even though that it was his responsibility. he became spiritually stagnant. And his spiritual life had become nothing more than a job. And so he was a spectator to his family and to his nation, to the temple, and everything started to deteriorate around him. It says in chapter 2, verse 29, that his greatest offense, however, was that he honored people more than he did God. He honored his sons and put more emphasis on his sons than he did on God. He put more emphasis on his two boys who were carrying out his legacy than he was on the legacy of the Lord that had been given to him as a priest. Now if you read about Hophni and Phinehas, you go down to chapter 2, verses 12 to 17, there's a description of them. And again, we won't take time to read it today, but it says that they were impatient young men. They would go in and there was food that was being prepared that had to be prepared a certain way, ceremonial to be uh, edible. But they would go in and before it was done, they would grab it and eat it. They couldn't wait. Um, It says that they had no regard for the Lord at all. Can you imagine that the leaders of a church had no regard for the Lord And you know, we can subtly shift our view where all of a sudden God's not the most important thing and we care more about what people think, about what culture thinks, than we do the Lord. That's what happened here. It says that they were bossy people. They didn't care about what other people thought. They did what they wanted to do. They didn't care what God thought or what the Word said. They did what they wanted to do. And if you go down to chapter 2, verse 22, it got so bad that they became sexually perverted men in the church, in the house of God. And so how quickly it went from a generation of people that loved God and were passionate for him to now this one generation that became passive, and now the next generation after that wanted nothing to do with God, and actually were doing things to hurt the people of God. And I sat there and I looked at this story, and it seemed like during the years of Eli and his sons that God wasn't doing a whole lot. But as you read the story, and we're going to come back to the story in a little bit, you'll see that God was not passive, God was not not doing anything. And do you ever feel like because things aren't changing, God isn't doing anything? My friends, God's not passive. And even though we think and want things to change, it doesn't mean that God under the surface isn't doing something. But God is patient and methodical many times in what he does. And what we want done immediately, he'll take time to do. And sometimes when the church is failing and floundering and struggling and we've become spectators, God doesn't necessarily intervene immediately immediately. He will work under and behind the scenes to raise up people that will stir us out of our apathy and stir us out of being spectators. Would you agree that when you read the Bible that Father God never does anything half-heartedly, would you agree with that? He never is indifferent, is he? He puts his all into anything that he does towards us as mankind. Would you agree that the Holy Spirit is never indifferent? Would you ever agree He's never neutral? He's passionate, isn't he? And would you agree that Jesus was never passive in this world? There was times he was quiet. There was times he seemed to be doing nothing. But would you agree that the underlying current was that there was a passionate, involved heart beating in Christ? And we're called to be like him. And so when you look at the life of Jesus, if Jesus encountered a bully, you know what he did? He interceded. And we live in a church age of spiritual bullies. And there are times that people need to rise up and intervene and sit there and go there on behalf of the person that's been hurt. Jesus saw a need. Whenever he saw a need, what did he do? He met it. And that same lack of passiveness in Jesus and his aggressive spirit towards working and acting on behalf of other people should be alive in us. Jesus, when he detected injustice, spoke up. He defended people that could not defend themselves. You know what? When Jesus walked into a place and he was unwelcomed, you know what he would do? He'd leave. Wouldn't that be a great message for the church today? Jesus, if Jesus walks into our church and he's not welcome, what will he do? He'll leave. We don't like to think of Christ like that. And he is gracious and merciful, but there comes a time where Jesus walks into a session and he knows, I'm just not welcome there anymore. I travel a lot and I speak a lot. Many times you walk into a church and you're looking for Jesus. You're trying to find him in the eyes or the mood or the worship or whatever. And it's almost like he's either been pushed off to the side or maybe he's decided to go out the door and find that other congregation to join with. But Jesus could never be passive about the topic of worship and involvement with God. Whenever Jesus had an opportunity, he'd take the Bible out and read it. You know, I learned a long time ago from a mentor of mine that when I'm in a difficult situation and I don't know what to do, read or quote Scripture. You ever had people, you ever walk into a situation where there's been a death and you don't know what to say and you don't know what to do? You can always share the Word of God. You can always share that truth. And Jesus loved to read the Word out loud. When Jesus was overwhelmed in his heart, you know what he did? He secluded himself in solitude and met with the Father and allowed the Father to send the Spirit to refresh him. He wasn't passive about those overwhelmed times. He didn't sit down and put on the equivalent of a DVD of his day. He didn't sit there and watch Netflix. He didn't go out and play racquetball. He went out and he was alone with the source of his strength. And so when we're weary, there's always something we can do, even if it's just going alone and shutting ourselves off from the world. Don't be passive about being overwhelmed, because if you are, that it will totally overwhelm you. When Jesus came across people that were grieving, what did he do? He grieved with them. You know, we've lost the art of just being there for people. If you hear of someone who's lost someone, just go and be with them. Even if you don't know what to say, just go and sit with them for a while. Because when we grieve with those who grieve, it connects them with God. When Jesus um, faced tough choices, he'd wrestle in prayer until he knew what to do. His whole life was about, Father, what should I do? And you know what? I've never gone to God and say, what should I do? And God says, well, I'll get back to you. He always has something for us to do, always someplace to go, someone to talk to or to minister to. In every situation, no matter what it was, Jesus couldn't be passive when he'd sit there and say, you know what? I know this is a bad situation, but let's take time now to give thanks to God for what he has done for us. He couldn't sit inactive. When he observed people being rejected and pushed away by the people of God, do you know what he would do? He would touch them. We've lost the ability to touch people. You know, I talk with John and other youth leaders, and they talk about all the laws and regulations you have now about child protection and all those kind of things. And they're necessary, aren't they? But haven't we also robbed the ability just to hug somebody and touch them and express warmth? Young people need healthy people to touch them. Did you know that? My wife does counseling, and she works with a lady who's mentoring her, and she has a woman who has a touch ministry. And what she will do, is, she's an incredible woman, she will hold people that have been broken. That's all she'll do, is she'll hold them and love them in a healthy way. My daughter, Laura, wants to be a masseuse, but she wants to go through a special division of, mass, of massage where you massage people that have been abused and they've never been touched in a healthy way. And she wants to be able to let people know that there's a God who loves them and transfer that through touch. Jesus, when he saw people that were abused and hurt, would touch them and translate health and love towards them. When Jesus saw the sick, he healed them. When he saw stubborn people, he'd confront them. When Jesus encountered immorality, he would address it. You know, we live in an age today where we always try to be politically correct, but when you read the New Testament, especially like the Sermon on the Mount, you'll see that Jesus came up and talked point-blank about these issues. Adultery, divorce, insincere oaths, revenge and unforgiveness, materialism, pride, um, ingratitude, indulgence, prayerlessness, apathy, unbelief. When he saw those things, he could not be passive. He had to stand up and say something. And not in this condescending kind of way, but in a loving, firm way. Speak the truth of love into the things that were wrong amongst his people. When Jesus was betrayed, he couldn't be passive. Do you remember when Peter betrayed him? And Peter thought that the relationship was all over? Go read John chapter 21 and see what it's like to take a man who was betrayed by somebody in the worst possible way and watch the way Jesus restores him. It's our responsibility to work towards restoring trust in broken relationships. The world is watching the church and they're seeing the divisions in the church and the lack of forgiveness. They're taking a step backward. When we learn to restore trust and restore people and restore forgiveness, they're going to start taking steps back towards the church of Jesus Christ. When Jesus confronted pride, he served, he became humble. I always believe that a lot of times what we do is we respond with the very same attitude that happens in our lives. So if somebody walks up and pushes you, your natural response is to what? Push back. If somebody comes in and says, I'm right, what does our mind say? I'm right. We have a tendency to respond to pride with pride. Jesus responded to pride with humility, and the people that were prideful did not know what to do with that. Jesus, when he detected that the world was infiltrating the church, he went in and he cleansed the church. He went in and says, no, we cannot tolerate this profiteering and this noise in my Father's house because it's supposed to be a place of prayer. When he met broken people and lost people who were confused and hurt and sometimes irritating and sometimes rejected by society, he would show compassion to them. Even on the Sabbath, Jesus was not a passive person. He went to the house of God every Sabbath. He read the word, he prayed, and he honored God and not men. And you know what would happen after he left the Sabbath? He would do good. Can you imagine if we all left church with a focus not on ourselves but on God and other people and we just said now that my worship experience is over, now I'm supposed to go out and just serve people and serve God and not put a focus on ourselves. How the attitudes towards Sunday would change in our country. When Jesus saw the white fields for harvest, could he be passive? Could he be a spectator? No, he had to do something and he would do one of three things. He would either evangelize himself... Or he would commission other people to evangelize. Or thirdly, he would pray for God to send evangelists. Are the fields white for harvest in this town? Absolutely. And so, what are you going to do? Are you going to evangelize yourself? Are you going to train evangelists? Are you going to pray for them? There's always something to do. But sometimes we just take a step back and we do nothing. And the enemy loves it when we do nothing. But God doesn't. When Jesus noticed people walking around with their heads down, do you know what he'd do? He'd just put his fingers underneath their chin and lift up their head and give them some piece of encouraging good news, which is the gospel. When Jesus was applauded and praised, do you know what he did? He deflected all the attention to the Father, not to himself. And we have to learn that one of the things we can always do is whenever people give us credit for anything we do in the kingdom of God is just deflect it to God. Just deflect it to Jesus and don't take credit ourselves. It may not seem like a big thing, but the church has become a lot about people and personalities and talents and abilities and they forget to look to the God who has blessed us with all those talents and abilities. When Jesus saw people that were biblically ignorant, he would point them to the correct scriptures. He would help them have healthy theology. And we need to not just pass by friends of ours that are going into things that are not healthy spiritually. We need to speak up because a lot of people are getting sucked into things today that are not healthy, that are purported by national ministries or international ministries. It's our responsibility to help people have a healthy perspective on what truth is. When Jesus met somebody that had lost a loved one, he visited them. When someone died, when there was a funeral, a friend of Jesus, he would go and he would be with them. I always, when I do do, uh, sermons at funerals, I always said, I want Jesus to come to my funeral. Do you know why? There isn't a funeral that Jesus went to where the person didn't come back to life. And I would love at my funeral to pop out of that casket and freak out all the people that are glad that I'm gone. Right? Right? But he would go to people who had lost loved ones. You know, and I know how hard it can be to walk into a situation where somebody's lost somebody, but it's still the right thing to do. And you can't sit back and be passive about something like that. Even when Jesus was falsely tried, I mean, they would you agree his trial was not fair? Would you agree that it was wrong? That it was a mistrial of mistrials? Would you agree with that? Okay. What did he do? He said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. He would not allow personal hurt to keep him from loving and forgiving people. Do you remember the movie The Passion of the Christ where Christ is hanging on the cross and the Pharisee is going by on his donkey and looking all pompous? And the thief on the cross looks at the Pharisee and says, he's doing this for you. Wow. That Jesus could do that. He would never be passive about hurt that had been in his life. So what I want to encourage you today to do is to look at your lives and look at the situations that you have around you and sit there and say, I will not be passive. I will be active. There is always something I can do in spirit or in reality. There's always something I can do relationally to represent Christ. But when I sit back and I'm a spectator and I do nothing, I compound the problem. In James chapter 4, verse 17, it says this, To him that knows what is right to do it and not do it, to him it is what? Sin. If we know what is simply the right thing to do, then just do it. And do it with all your heart because that's what the Father would do. That's what the Son would do. That's what the Holy Spirit would do. But history has been filled with spectators. And the church has always had spectators. Do you remember that train recently was going from Amsterdam to Paris and that guy got on it and the three Americans and the Brits subdued the guy that was on board? Did you know he walked on board that train? He had an automatic weapon, 270 rounds of ammunition, knives, and a can of gasoline, and nobody stopped him getting on the train. Does that make sense? Because a lot of people just weren't willing to get involved. But aren't you glad that three Americans and a Brit decided to do something? Hundreds of people could have died if they had remained spectators, but they weren't willing to do that. They were willing to get personally involved because they knew that it was the right thing to do, and it was the right thing to do. And how do people look at them as spectators? No, as heroes. And I don't think any Christian in our lives should ever set it as a goal to be a hero. Should we? That puts the focus on us. But we should be people that are saying, I am not going to sit back in inactivity and allow destruction and pain to happen to God's people or to other people or to their family. I am going to take action. I am going to be proactive in not being some person who is a half-hearted participant or just watch what's going on, but I'm going to jump in and get involved. And so as you think of the story about Eli and Hophni and Phinehas, It's interesting because here's this man who lost all sense of spirituality. He was sitting back and he was just a spectator. His sons became worse than spectators. What did they become? They became those people that were actually creating problems and destroying the kingdom of God. And it seemed like God wasn't doing anything. But behind the scenes, God was doing something amazing. You know what he was doing? There was a woman down the street who was pregnant with a little baby named Samuel. How long was it going to take Samuel to grow up and institute some changes? Quite a while, wasn't it? But God sat there and said, you know, my solution's a baby. We don't like that, do we? We don't want to wait 30 years for this guy to grow up and become the leader. We want changes now. That's part of the problem. We're impatient. It's not being passive, waiting on God to move and to act. That's an active thing that you can do. But Samuel grew up and became a great man of God, didn't he? But not only that, God looked at Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas and said, you know what, there's going to come a day where I cannot allow their leadership and their attitudes to continue. And eventually, Eli and Hophni and Phinehas were put to death. And a man named Zadok was the next line of priests that came to be. And the name Zadok means rival. Isn't that interesting? When God looks at us and sees us passive and sees us as spectators, He wants people to rise up that are going to be their rivals, that are going to be irritating to them, that are going to confront them and eventually supplant them. So it says in Ezekiel, I think it's chapter 44, that Zadok's priest, their whole uh, generational line from Zadok all the way until the very last member of his line, were priests that were welcome in the house of God. Wow. Isn't that awesome? Because they didn't sit back. They were not people that were passive. They were not self-focused. They were not sexually involved. They were pure men. They were taking their job of being a leader in the temple seriously. They were active participants filled with the Holy Spirit and doing His work. And what happened is the church... And the, well, back then, the Jewish people got this new sense of stability. Zadok was a, and his descendants were priests during the reign of David and in the high days of the nation of Israel. So I want to close with this. Any of you ever read, it's a little. It's not a real well-known verse, it's John 3, 16. You ever read it? Anybody here not know the verse? Okay, I don't want to embarrass anybody. We all know it, right? Sometimes I think the most important word in that verse is overlooked, and it's the word so. It says, for God, what? So loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It doesn't say that God loved the world. It said he loved so much, with so much intensity. It was this this love that had to act. Do you have a so kind of love? Or do you have a so what kind of love? When you look at a situation, you sit there and say, I have to do something for this child who's lost. I have to do something for this person that's grieving. I have to do something about the fact that we're losing this next generation of young people. I have to do something to see that this person has been cut off from the church and feels distant, and we've lost, and we've actually shot our own wounded and pushed them off to the side. I can't allow that to continue. I see poor truth being poured into my young people. I see a struggle in this marriage. Can you sit back and say so, or do you say so what? God would never say so what. Aren't you glad that he didn't say so what about you and me? He didn't sit down from heaven and say, well, I love them, but not that much. Not enough to give up my son. Not enough to actually take on losing my son to the cruelty of death. And watching him have to descend down into hell. And to see him mistreated. God but said, I love the world so much, I would go to any extent to do what was necessary to redeem mankind. And we are children of that God, aren't we? So shouldn't his attitudes, his love, his, uh, his kindness, his caring, his strength, his purity, all of those things be evident in us? Because when we look at lost people, I don't think we look at them the way God sees them. I really don't. If we did, we would take more action. God looked and saw a lost world and said, I love them so much I'll send my son. Here are just a few ways the Bible describes lost people. They stand condemned before God. They are without hope, they are enslaved, they are deceived, they are blind, they are spiritually alone, they are orphaned, they are unloved, they are used and abused, they are vulnerable, they are ignorant, they're lost in darkness, they're facing death, they're believing lies, they have no purpose in their life, they're controlled by their appetites, they're sick in mind, body, and spirit, they're both dead and dying, they're under the weight of sin, they are heading towards judgment with no plea, they're part of a lost mob that's going to walk off the cliff of eternity and they're sheep without it like a shepherd and we sit there and notice that and we do nothing and we say that we're the children of god can you understand why god doesn't understand that his kingdom is not made up of spectators it is made up of wholehearted devoted people that want to take his love and his message and his gospel into the entire world to every single living creature that wants to make a difference in their family and their neighborhood in the streets and the schools and the places they work We're active participants in every single moment of life to want to serve God because of his willingness to serve us. So would you be willing to be the kind of person today that says, you know what, I'm going to be a rival to anybody that's just a spectator. I'm going to irritate the heck out of them. I am not going to sit back and be the presence that can go along with inactivity and being a spectator. I am going to be a wholehearted devotee of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray for this church. I thank you for its warmth. I thank you for its humor. I thank you for its worship. I thank you, Lord, for the fellowship that is so obvious. But Father, I pray you take it up a notch. I pray that you would take some of the key people in this church that don't even know they're key people and raise them up, Father, to be rivals to inactivity and passiveness and to spectatorism and help them to know what it's like to give their whole heart to you, the whole heart to the kingdom of God, a whole heart to a lost generation, and we could see the fruit that your son saw in this world because he never sat passive. So send a spirit amongst us, Lord, that will convict us and move us from passivity to wholehearted devotion. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.